Our New Testament reading this morning is from uh, Romans chapter 1. I will read the first six verses. Hear the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you promised that wherever two or more are gathered in your name, that you would be present also. And so we welcome you here into this room, and we ask that you would be alive and active in our hearing and in our thinking this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So our reading this morning from the letter to the Romans is less than one full sentence. The period is going to come next week in verse 7. John Stott in his commentary on Romans says that this rambling less than a sentence introduction tells us six things about the gospel. And this morning I'm going to lift up five of those things to organize this sermon. Those five things are, number one, the origin and the owner of the gospel is God. Number two, the substance of the gospel is the Son. Number three, the scope of the gospel is all nations. Number four, the ultimate goal of the gospel is the obedience of faith. I mean, the immediate goal of the gospel is the obedience of faith. And number five, the ultimate goal of the gospel is the greater glory of Christ. So first, the origin and the owner of the gospel is God. Our reading begins, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set aside for the gospel of God. The word gospel is just an old-fashioned word for good news, With the passage of time, it's come to have a different connotation than it did at first, which is a bit of a problem, and maybe we should go back to good news because it's really important to understand that what we're talking about here is news. And news is different from idle, unsubstantiated reports. News is different from fake news. News is different from gossip. Friday evening, I flew from... Charlotte to Philadelphia and then took the train from the airport home and about six minutes from the airport the train broke down the lights went out and the train glided to a stop in the middle of nowhere it's fascinating how long a train will continue to coast when the power's been turned off so there we sat in the dark wondering what's going on wondering when this thing was going to start 
moving again, wondering if we were going to be run over by a speeding Amtrak train. And then the gossip began to spread up and down the train cars. You could hear crew members getting off and on the train. We could hear banging and squawking of radios. And every little tidbit spread like wildfire up and down the stalled car trains. We really had no information. We had no news. What we had was gossip. And then finally, the announcement came over the loudspeaker. Another train was being sent out to rescue us. Now that was good news. The gospel, Paul makes clear, is not gossip. And that's because it comes from an official source. It comes from God himself. Paul writes that he was set apart for the gospel of God. And there is a small but important grammatical point here. All of you English majors will appreciate this. Paul uses the genitive form for the word God. He uses the possessive form. And that means that the good news is God's news. The good news isn't our news about God. It's God's official news about himself. The gospel is not gossip. We land into a lot of trouble when we think of scripture, when we think of the gospel as a bunch of human reports about what we think about God. That's called philosophy. And I love philosophy, but we should never confuse human philosophy with God's revelation. Paul's first point, the origin and the owner of the gospel is God. Point number two, the substance of the gospel is the Son. Paul writes, the gospel of God concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In these clauses, we still have less than one sentence. In these clauses, Paul identifies at least three important truths about Jesus. First, Jesus is the Son of God. From the get-go, the Christian faith has always been Trinitarian. We worship one God who has made himself known in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is not a prophet. Jesus is not a wise man. Jesus is not an ascended master. And so Jesus doesn't belong to the same club as Muhammad and Socrates and the Buddha. Jesus is God. Hebrews 1.3 tells us Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds, he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Second, Jesus is also human, and he is a descendant of King David. That's important for three reasons. His human nature is what allows him to take on the sins of humanity at the cross. His human nature is what allows him to be a merciful high priest for us because he knows what it's like to be us. And his lineal descent from King David is a requirement for him to be the long-promised Messiah. Third, Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul says that Jesus was, quote, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It is his resurrection which certifies that Jesus is the Son of God. The miracles of Jesus, healing sick people, feeding 5,000, walking on water, the miracles of Jesus certified that Jesus was from God, That his message was God-breathed, 
The same was true of the miracles performed by the apostles after Jesus ascended to heaven. The purpose of the miracles was to confirm the word that had been preached. But the resurrection of Jesus goes beyond this. The resurrection of Jesus is what made it clear to the church that Jesus wasn't just a man. He was and is the everlasting Son of God. Paul's second point. The substance of the gospel is Jesus. Paul's third point is that the scope of the gospel is all nations. Paul describes his own apostleship this way. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now maybe this isn't a surprise to us anymore, but it was big news at the time. At that time, the world was full of lots of local religions with local gods. And our God was the God of our nation, but he wasn't the God of your nation. Our God was on our side, but he hated your guts. In Jesus Christ, good news for the entire world was proclaimed. In Jesus Christ, there are no God-forsaken nations. In Jesus, God has good news for the entire world. And if that's not big enough news for you, then maybe you need to bring it home. The good news is for all people, and that means the good news is for you, individually. We all have the same problem. We're all in the same boat. Our fallen human nature is separated from God by sin. We can't fix that problem. There is no self-help program for human sin. There is no 12-step program that will change the basic human nature. What we need is a new nature. What we need is a new start. What we need is to be born again. And that's what we have if we repent and place our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's third point is that the scope of the gospel is all nations. Paul's fourth point is that the immediate goal of the gospel is the obedience of faith. Now in points four and points five, I'm going to make a distinction between the immediate goal and the ultimate goal. Let me explain. Last week, I sat through 30 hours of lectures by Dr. Joel Beakey, the professor of my class at the Reformed Theological Seminary. The immediate goal of those lectures was to pound into our heads lots of information about the theology of the Puritans. Now, while it may be a wonderful thing to understand the theology of people who all died 300 years ago, my ultimate goal in sitting through all of those lectures is not to know more about Jonathan Edwards, but to better serve this congregation and through this congregation to bring greater glory to God. Paul says that the immediate goal of the gospel is to bring obedience of faith. Paul is an apostle preaching the gospel. And the immediate goal of his teaching is to bring about in the lives of the individuals he preaches to the, quote, obedience of faith. The Great Commission, Jesus' final marching orders to the disciples before he ascended into heaven, is recorded for us in Matthew 28. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, it is by grace that we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we observe 
all that Christ commands. That means we are obedient to the law of Christ. Jesus didn't say, believe in me for the forgiveness of your sins and then continue to live like the devil. Those who are saved by faith in Christ also have the obedience of faith. They also observe all that Christ commanded. So Paul's immediate goal in proclaiming the gospel is this obedience of faith in the lives of those who've come to know Jesus. And finally, Paul's fifth point is the ultimate goal of the gospel is the greater glory of Christ. Here's what Paul has written. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. For the sake of Jesus' name among all of the nations. Bringing Glory to God, bringing glory to Christ is what it's all about. Lifting up the name of Jesus is the ultimate purpose and goal of the gospel. In Philippians 2, Paul quotes a hymn about Jesus that the early church sang. Someone needs to write a new setting for this hymn, by the way. We don't have one in our hymn book. The words are this, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The gospel is wonderful. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation For salvation to everyone who believes. It's wonderful to be able to be saved. To be saved from our sins. To be saved from damnation. To be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But it is even, but even more wonderful than our salvation is the glory of God Himself. Think of it this way. All around us is this remarkable, beautiful universe. Its hugeness and its complexity is beyond anything that the human mind can master. But that universe is so infinitely smaller than God himself. It is the creation of God. God is bigger than the universe and God simply spoke it into being. And so while we rightly glory in the beauties of nature, how much more should we glory in the beauty of Him who made all of nature? Our salvation is a great and a wonderful thing. With our salvation will come the obedience of faith, but what's real, but that salvation is really only one stop along the way to a much greater goal, a goal which points beyond all things in this universe, which points to the glory of God himself. So this is the first sermon in my series of sermons on Paul's letter to the Romans. This series is going to take one year, which is actually a rather brisk pace. 
through what many consider the most important book in the Bible. There are a lot of stories out there about serious Reformed pastors taking three years, five years, eight years to preach their way through the book of Romans. Now, I have been avoiding this book, to tell you the truth. Though the first sermon I preached here at HVPC, some of you might remember it, way back when I was candidating for this pulpit, was based on a text from Romans. I've been avoiding this book because it is a weighty book. John Piper, a reformed pastor who hasn't been shy of weighty matters, waited 18 years until he felt ready to preach through Romans. I've waited 12 and a half years. And frankly, I hope I'm not rushing this. Paul writes to his protege, the young Timothy. He writes to him and says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's how it reads in the King James Version. It is the calling of a pastor to rightly divide the word of truth which means to teach and to preach the scriptures accurately. My calling isn't to stand up here and talk to you about what I think or my philosophy of life, but to rightly divide the word of truth which has been given to us in scripture. As we dig into Romans, I want you to be the kind of congregation that makes great Preaching possible. This may be the greatest book in the Bible and it deserves great preaching. And great preaching requires three parties. The Holy Spirit, the preacher, and the congregation. You have an important role to play in the preaching here at HVPC. The Holy Spirit's going to do his part. I promise to try my best. But let's talk about your part in great preaching. You have three obligations Your first obligation is prayer. I need you to pray for me. The Apostle Paul, the super-Christian, history's greatest evangelist, regularly begged his churches to pray for him. The job of rightly dividing the word is bigger than any human can handle. It requires supernatural power. And so I need you to earnestly pray for me that God will give me the words that I need. That God will allow me to understand the mysteries of this gospel. But I need you to also pray for yourselves. That God will give you ears to hear and hearts that are soft and receptive to the word of God. Pray for yourself. Pray for others who will come to hear these sermons. Ask that God would do a mighty work in our lives through this series of sermons. Your first obligation is prayer. Your second obligation is attention. Show up. We're here every Sunday. Stay awake. Take notes. Come to church expecting to hear from God. It's a privilege to have the word of God proclaimed to us. Let us never take it for granted. Let us be attentive. And your third obligation is meditation. Meditation is a biblical, spiritual discipline. Psalm 1 begins this way. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that the sinners take 
or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law both day and night. This word meditate in Hebrew means to chew the cud, to ruminate, to mull over. When we meditate on the word of God, it finds its way into our hearts and into our bones. It becomes a part of who we are. It begins to shape our thinking and our desires. And so when you walk out of here today, think about this sermon. Think about what you heard. Wrestle with it. Mull it over. Talk amongst yourselves about it. Prayer. Attention. Meditation. That's your assignment. That's your part in having really great preaching here at HVPC. Now, I don't want to close this sermon without inviting you to respond to the gospel. Jesus offers an invitation, and that invitation requires a response. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. What we labor under is the weight of unforgiven sin. What makes our lives heavy are the consequences of our sin, both in this life and in the life to come. And Jesus invites us to lay all of that down. Lay it down. Lay it down at the feet of Jesus and tell him that you don't want to carry that burden anymore. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the weight of human sin onto his back and he paid the divine penalty for that sin. You don't need to carry your own sin. You don't need to be chained to it anymore. Jesus invites you to follow him, to turn away from your old life and to start a new life. He invites you to be his disciple, to learn from him and to discover that his yoke is easy and that his burden is light. If you have never responded to Jesus' invitation to a new life, to a life free of the burden of sin and despair, then I invite you to do that today. I invite you to make a decision to follow Jesus today. I made that decision years ago, and I never want to go back. It's a decision you will never regret. And you can do that. You can do that right now, this morning. We're going to bow our heads and we're going to pray together. And if you want a new life in Christ, if you want to lay down your burdens, then you can pray with me silently these words as I pray aloud. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are the Son of God and that you died on a cross to pay the price for my sin. And I know that I've made a mess of my life and I've done so many things that are not right in your sight. Please forgive me of my sins. Bind me to yourself. Give me your Holy Spirit so that I can turn around and Live a new life. Lord Jesus, be my Savior and be my Lord. Amen. Amen.